You're listening to Loving the Snow Life with Emma and Tanil. Tanil, our mum, and Emma, her awesome friend, share deep passion for the snow. They started the podcast together to share all their experiences with you. Between them, they have skied over 95 resorts, both held ski instructor qualifications, lived and worked in resorts, and still spent every hard-earned dollar skiing. They set their lives up around snow travel, and our ski bags are always packed, ready to go. We're certainly not complaining about this, are we? No way. And even better, we get to share all the experiences. When a love of skiing, Austrian schnapps and creative juices flow, what emerges? Today we welcome Brad Spaulding, one half of the Brad and Monica Wild Brumby success story. Brad, how's it going? Hi Emma, how's things? It's going good. We've started skiing, or Paris are opened on Friday, so lots of happy skiers around. Oh, excellent. Has it got busy down there all of a sudden? Yeah, it was yeah, it was really busy on the weekend. Uh, I think they skied uh, 1,400 people on Saturday, so wow. that's not bad for a week before opening. Yeah, so, um, yeah. yeah, it's good. The hype is amazing. I've never seen people so excited about going skiing. Oh, um, good. They've, yeah, they've, they've um, you know, people haven't been away. They haven't had friends that have been away, so they haven't been sharing their experiences. They've just been waiting to go skiing. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of keen people out there that just want to I think this weekend opening weekend is going to be huge it's um there's a lot of people that have uh that haven't been on skis for a while and um I've never seen the energy at this level before oh, so, uh, so I think the whole winter is going to be like that you oh, know? yeah everything's booked out I have a feeling your your winter is going to be one of your biggest ever because you go to try you try and yeah. get accommodation you can't get that you like everyone's no. online waiting to get the lift tickets even though they're expensive but you know what let's do it let's support the industry that needs it right now yeah 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 definitely that's right you know like um, it's you know we're lucky in New South Wales at the moment like in Victoria they're not even having an opening you know so and um, this weekend. Um, yeah, so, you know, Buller and um, I suppose Falls Creek and Mount Hotham are just going to rely on on the, the regional business around them, but uh, out of Melbourne there's nothing. So, yeah, it's a bit, there they go again, you know. No, let's hope so. Let's hope not, actually. Sorry, not let's hope so. Yeah. Gosh. Um, well, I- that, that's, yeah. Yeah, so they should open up in, they think they'll open up on, on the Tuesday after the long weekend, so that'll be great. If that happens, yeah, we'll come okay. on for them. So I guess longer than that. Yeah. I guess you knew the word pivot before it became uh, an amazing word that we've used to encode. You've gone from ski instructing to artist, entrepreneurial to wild brumby to everything. So we might start at the beginning with you. How did you get into okay. the industry? <laughs> well, no, um, my uh, I was I was lucky enough to have a family that were skiers and they we went to Falls Creek and we were members of the Albury Ski Club. Uh, we had a country pub outside of Albury and we went up to uh, Falls Creek and uh, I was the youngest in the family so I started a lot earlier than my sister and brother and, and um, yeah, and it got to a point where I really liked it and my father said when I turned 14 and I was he, he said, I'm not uh, sponsoring your day tickets anymore, you have to find a job. And um, and so I went to the ski school because I thought that'll be a cool place to start. And and I asked the the, the director was a guy called Ziggy Harbertsettle, and I went to Ziggy Harbertsettle and said, "Oh, look, I do you need a ski instructor? Maybe you know." And he said, "Oh, yeah, sure. Ski down the village. I'll have a look at how you ski." And I got to the bottom of the village, and he said, "You've got a job." Wow! <laughs> and I got a uniform, and that's how it all started. Oh my gosh, the world has changed now. <laughs> yeah. Love that. Yeah, now, now you know, um, thank God there's quite a stringent training program and, you know, people are, um, you know, you, you um, well, let's start something that then led to, uh, you know, teaching in school holidays and weekends and then um, then I, I, I went away and studied fine art and I was still teaching when I was a student. So, yeah, I just continued on and then I thought I'd do it one year for full, full time when I graduated and and I did it 26 years straight. Yeah. So, um, 
As instigator at Threadbow, so a massive job on your hands. You were an instigator of Threadbow Land, I think, which is amazing. Because yeah, yeah, Threadbow Land was um, yeah. That so as uh, it was an exciting time in the industry, and the reason that I was given the job was that uh, that had gone from sort of an elite sport to a mass sport, where you know you could hire equipment and people were getting lessons, and there was packages, and it was it, it skiing had become affordable, and so um yeah, so they. It, it it meant that uh, there was an opening for Australians to get into the industry. Prior to that, it was mainly uh, imported instructors. So it was an exciting time because the Australian Professional Snowsport Instructors or Ski Instructors Association in those days had just started. So we'd started to train instructors and I got right into the training program in Australia. And then, um, you know, out of that uh you know, we had exchange programs with overseas and all that sort of thing developed into, uh, you know, education of, of skiers and different age groups. Um, and kids came into, into the scene and, you know, three to six-year-olds and seven to 14s became a big part of the, the ski industry. And that's where Threadbow Land came from, you know, was developing that, that program, which is, um, yeah, it's been very successful. Hundreds of thousands of kids have gone through that program now um you know yeah so uh yeah a lot of the thread by land what was before Mm -hmm. that was it yogi bears i'm trying to think what i would have done as a kid milo did you do yogi bears yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah yogi yogi was american so we went australian and we had wally wombat instead wally wombat and sid koala and eddie emu and Mm. and extreme rat so we changed to Australian animals. Mm. It wasn't just about teaching skiing. It was teaching kids about the, the ecology and history of the mountains and, you know, just just the, you know, what, um, you know, uh, kids can absorb so much when they're on a ski holiday. So so it was, uh, and, and and we changed from just a two-hour lesson or, a, you know, one or two-hour lesson to an all-day program for a whole week. So um, we had time to fill out the program and teach the kids just more than just skiing, but um, you know they they got into the mountain experience, which is great. It's mm-hmm. um, they love it. So when yeah. you start, how it. many instructors did you start with, and how many like uh, how how did you make like twenty six years on a ski school? That's amazing. What that's a huge achievement because well, yeah, like ski schools were small. There was twenty twenty thirty instructors, and then you know we ended up with three hundred and eighty. So you know mm-hmm. that was the growth over you know. Um, and and that's that's small relative to schools like Vale and and Whistler that have over thousand instructors. So, you know, um, but um, it's it's small, but it's intense in Australia. Our season is short and it's full on. So, you know, it's it's a. Um, I think this year, if you want to become a ski instructor and you're a good skier and you want to go through uh, the APSI training program, I think they'd love to have you because there's a lot of advertisements out there for, for instructors at the moment um, because there's no imported instructors at all. So nobody's coming in from overseas. Mm. So I think there are, it's a bit like when I was 14 years of age and Ziggy Hubbard settled off me the job. I think you could almost do that again at the wow. moment. There we go. They are, yeah. <laughs> At least the APSI. There you go, Emma. You should get your, get your qualification out, Emma, and, <laughs> um, and we'll see you at Friday flat on yeah. Saturday morning. Well, well that kind of leads to the uh, Ski Like a Pro program where I discovered <laughs> yeah. you. Um, yeah. So, t- well, my, with basically my story was that me being a um, language teacher, I was like a burnt-out teacher and age 29 or 28, 29, I thought I've always wanted to be a ski instructor, was Googling where I can go around the world and found these uh, courses in Austria run by Threadbow, <laughs> Threadbow staff or you, yeah. and yeah. Um, signed up and took my boyfriend on the course and got engaged the first day and we're still married. Yeah, that was... Uh... <laughs> Yeah. So well, tell, tell everyone about your Ski Like a Pro courses that I did. Well, that was um, it was to do with um, the Bundesportheim, which is the, the state-run um, program. In Austria, they have a very structured training program. And um, so we, 
we thought that uh, it'd be great to get um, a group of Australians together and put them through that Austrian program and then bring them back in, into the system, So, um, which uh, ran for the, the training and accreditation program ran for about 20, 20 years. And we had a, a lot of um, instructors that did the SLAP program um, in Austria that are still working in Threbo. Actually, the director um, or ski school manager in Threbo, Adam Hosey, was out of that program. So mm. he's running now. He took over after me. So um, it, it gave people a really good basis. And a, um, our season in Australia, we thought, was too short to really um, get people uh, into a program and rebuild them, start them from scratch and rebuild them with their stance, their balance, and 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 give them a really good basic position and the training so that they could go on and go through all of their levels. We felt that some in some areas that was rushed, rushed, the program was rushed, and if you didn't have that really solid basis and that um, that 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 feeling for skiing, uh, you would. You would you would have difficulty getting through the program. So they do the Austrian program, come and teach in Threadbow, uh, some taught in other schools as well, but predominantly Threadbow, and then go straight into their uh, level two Australian training. So yeah, yeah. So it was um, and quite we, incredible we had, that we we were expected to learn another language, being Austrian. Yeah, well, and teach well, and teach in another language. Well, um, that was the only way we could get around it to pass the Austrian qualification. It had to be, you had to uh, have a basis in German. So, you know, um, yeah, that that was, um, Interesting. yeah, that was quite a shock for a lot of our SLAP candidates. Yeah. But I think you know what? Old, old um, Jake. <laughs> but, um, yeah, but it's fantastic. I mean, I love that they expected you to just, that's it. You've just got to learn another language. Yeah, but on that side, Emma, you know, we we also uh, sent a lot of uh, SLAP candid- candidates and graduates out to, to Austrian ski schools. So if if you were going to be then sent out to an Austrian ski school and teach for two or three months after the program before you, you – and then that would give, give you, a, you know, you, you had your training, you had you got your, your accreditation and then you went out and had your practical teaching experience. By the time you came back to Australia – you you would um, you'd had an experience in another language in another can- country. You had a, a, a qualification, and um, yeah, so it, it 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 meant that um, you know you had a basis in the language to go out and teach. Yeah, you, know, um, you needed needed it for the qualification, but you also needed it to continue if you wanted to stay on. Um, yeah. And and many yeah, a lot of lot of people stayed on. Yeah, we stayed um, on. We and a lot returned. We worked at Caprun and Zell MC. Yeah. 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 How'd yeah. that go? Oh, fantastic. Great. Yeah. 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 I kind of grew up on the See, other um, side of the mountains, I guess, and we were like, so I grew up at Charlotte Pass and Perishaw, so on yeah. the other hill, and we and I was a ski instructor there for 10 years at Charlotte's, and we kind of had the yeah. the Canadian influence on us over that time, yeah. not so much an Austrian-European influence. So when you were ski school director, did, did you come to, like the APSI was just forming when I was back in the day, you know, like I could have my Canadian yeah. international cert and that was fine to be in Australia. So did you join the, because it was quite a Canadian and a European influence, wasn't there, in our ski instructors back in the early days. So when the APSI was forming, was were you a lot involved in that to get, both of them together to create our own Australian ski style. Yeah, look, we were we were um, really interested in not only the Canadian but the uh, PSI, the yeah. American system as well. Yeah. Um, but you I'm know, we we sort of had this feeling, and I've, 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 I did get into trouble at times for saying this. I've, uh, um, that you know, the, the Austrians taught us how to ski, and the Canadians and the Americans taught us how to teach. Now, the Austrians really. But in many ways, it was quite true. You know, they their their skiing ability, um, you know, that was was fantastic. And we had we had at least forty Austrians uh, on exchange in Threadbow, and they were all fully qualified Austrians. So they had to be um, 
of you know the state diploma qualification to come out to Australia. So their level of ability, skiing ability, was was really high, and um, and that that influence. There was yeah, there was a lot of influences, and of course, what the APSI was about was developing an Australian teaching method, um, which was was truly Australian because uh, the the um, how Australians learn and how many other um, countries and people in 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 uh, in Europe or in North America learn is totally different to how Australians learn. Australians are, are used to having lessons. They're used to having their tennis lessons, their swimming lessons, and all of you know. And 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 we found that we could speed up the progression a lot more, so that um, you know they just really wanted to get into the sport a little bit faster. Whereas a lot of other countries were. We're into um, slowing the progression down, um, but Aussies really want to give it a crack, and I think that that changed the teaching method a bit. Um, and uh, yeah. yeah, so that was that was an exciting time to develop those manuals that actually were suited to the Australian skier. Um, but the influences from from North America and and Austria were, were were very strong. I know in Charlotte Pass there was a strong Canadian connection. Yeah. In in Threadbow there was a strong Austrian connection and been there for years. And in uh, in in Falls Creek, Mount Hotham, and then at Mount Buller they had two ski schools. They had the Austrian and the French ski school. Oh, so. Wow. Yeah, because they had two lift companies and the blue lift company was the French ski school and the orange lift company was the, the Austrian ski school. And and so, yes, you, you could choose whether you wanted to be taught the French method or the Austrian method. That's pretty cool. And now it's just, and now it's just the Australian method, which is not. So the Australian method is like the bits the methods or the like the best of. Um, I think I think we did draw on, uh, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of, of the we took the best out of it yeah we definitely took the best out and then we represented in the international interski which is the international congress yeah. where all of the countries come together and compare you know their teaching methods and and we presented our teaching method uh, to the world which was um you know how how we ski how we stand on skis and how we teach skiing um and you know we did that 30 years ago now um in St Anton and we've been back every year since. Every, no, every so every interski since. So, um, and so I've been to most of them. We're well so, renowned in the world, like our because we we do you know we can make the best of four turns, can't we? Because that's our hill <laughs> that we ski on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but I know that everywhere you go, if you've got if you are an Australian and you have international qualifications, you're actually wanted on ski schools wherever you go. I think because we do we do have to mm. teach a lot. In a small hill, like you can't waste time on a lift, you can't waste time traversing. You've actually got to teach quite a lot in an hour and a half lesson or a full day lesson, you know. Which is, yeah, absolutely. That's that's right. You know, we um, we you we had to come up with a method that um, was look. It can be very. We have to understand that you know, in in a, if you're a beginner skier in Australia, the the, the beginner space in or the new skier space is very limited the volume of skiers within that space is is uh, enormous so you know you really um magic carpets have changed it a little bit because we used to just sidestep up and then herringbone up and ski down you learn you you, you, you balance your stance you balance your snowplow then your turns uh, and then now if you can if you can hold a snowplow you get on a magic carpet which is really easy to ride. You go up the magic carpet and you step step off, and your glide time um, is just. You right. get the joy of skiing as soon as you get off that magic carpet, and you can hold a snowplow. Mm. So I think, you know, I, I don't know whether that happened in Charlotte Pass, but we used to have rows and rows of beginner skiers no. with really heavy equipment on their feet, <laughs> and to sidestep up the hill and down, and you know, you'd spend a whole you know hours doing that. And now it's 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 a fast progression from uh, and much lighter equipment. So a fast progression from you know the basics, and then you're on the magic carpet and you're away. And as soon as you get that feeling, I think that's that's where it all starts. Whether you're a three year old or or a seventy year old, it doesn't really make any difference. Yeah. yeah. 
so true. It's so true. And then the progression is quite fast. Well, depends on your ability, but more time on snow. Yeah, so the magic carpet. We had the uh, good old rope toe up at Charlotte's that used to hook you behind your knee if you weren't ready. Good times, good times. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, you know, um, if you didn't dislocate your shoulder, you know, you were, you were, um, or it hooked you in the back and flipped you over. Did, um, how many years did you do slut before you headed home? And then was was there a gap before you started Wild Brumby? How, what was that? What was your progression? <laughs> no, well, we're, there was um, not much of a gap. We're still working in Threadbow. Monica and I were still in Threadbow, uh, and we opened Wild Brumby, so we're still. Uh, and my niece ran it for the first winter um and you know so we then after that first winter we said well it's time to time to uh concentrate on wild brumby and and um it's uh leave it up hand over you know it was a big, was a big deal when we'd spent you know so much of our yeah. you know our, our careers in that that um that business but i'm i'm still closely connected to to the school like it's um but yeah it was yeah it was just um it was time it was time for you know we'd we'd done our bit and it was time to hand over and and uh and and let somebody else have a crack and we must mention that monica is austrian and so when you went yeah. back to austria she could see a family and stuff over there yeah yeah and so, you know yeah. we say Monica's had a very strong Austrian influence on the ski industry and now the um, the sting industry. Love it. So, yeah, yeah. It's. <laughs> Did you have to move off the mountain down to the property at Wild Brumby? Was that a big tough move to kind of, went, or you still? Yeah, we sold. Yeah, we moved out of Threadbow down <laughs> down the down the valley and. Um, yeah, it's interesting because we, you know, and I, I think when we started, uh, when we worked in in the ski schools, you know, in, in False Creek, and then we went to Threadbow, we lived on the right on the on the on the slopes. You know, it was the accommodation was right there, so you know, um, and yeah. you get so used to that. Yes, you know, now a lot of people live off the mountain, but and and work. But in the old days, everybody just lived there. Like it was a whole community of people just living. Like at Charlotte Pass, you would live there. We did. We had did silver. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. well, I tell you, there's a lot of people would like to have a cell block now because the accommodation, there's just no accommodation available for yeah. Yeah. At, the, at the moment. So that's a yeah, thing with the industry that's got to change worldwide, doesn't it? If you want the industry still to develop and you want the people to still come and work the season, you need to look after the staff. Yeah. Like we run a ski business over in Canada as well at Sun Peaks, and that's a hard thing for them in Sun Peaks, you know. Like Whistle is even worse. They're paying through the, like, you know, they pay so much to live there and they're yeah. not getting the same amount of money. So it's got to be, I think that's the next step within the industry is they've got to, like, go, okay, let's look after staff, get them kind of sorted so we actually can run the industry. So people can come and have a good yeah. time, I guess. But yeah. yeah, yeah, that's interesting. If you're at Sun Peaks, did you have you ever come across the Nancy Green program? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, cool, isn't it? Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's that really was. Good. So you started Wild Brumby in what 2005? Mm. Is it? Did yeah, you? 2004. Four, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two, 2004. Yeah, there's a few different dates there. Like we started building Wild Brumby in about 2002. And then we opened to the public in 2004. What um, were you offering? Was, what was on the menu then? Uh, <laughs> there was only schnapps and coffee. And then I said to Monica, I, it'd be really good if we made uh, a really nice goulash because people would like to eat it. So we, Monica and I cooked up a pot of goulash and that went really well. Um and then we added a schnitzel to it and now and we were still doing that and then we employed somebody to help us and uh yeah now there's four people working in the kitchen it's a full menu and um goulash is still on the menu and uh, menu and schnitzel still on the menu but um yeah it went from a pot of goulash to where it is now yeah it's that's, huge. A, and, that's a good and, one for the snow and a small snow. range of schnapps yeah a small range how many flavors yeah. do you have <laughs> No, no, in those days we had oh. six. Oh, right, right, right. Okay, yeah, six. six. Yeah, in the early days, yeah. And how many do you have and, now? Uh, about 
uh, we probably have about in different bottle sizes and things, not varieties, but we have 60 different products. So, yeah. Wow. It's, so yeah, so that's. The distillery in itself, how do you get 60 products out? Where is that all come? Where do the ingredients come from? How do yeah, you- well, we've, we've just um, we've just gone through a major expansion. We've, um, we have a new production facility and a new still. Um, the old still is, is named after my grandmother, Florence, and now we have Joan, which is my mother, and Joan is 10 times the size of Florence. Uh, and so we have us. a new bottling facility and a new still. And uh, most of the fruit is sourced from Batlow. Um, we get some fruit from Victoria as well. So you got, we rid, of those, and, uh, you got rid of those Austrian fellows on the bicycles out the back, like stirring the fruit? <laughs> no, no, they're still there. <laughs> Hang on to those. <laughs> they're still out the back. No, we, it's, um, you know, we have, we have now there's uh, 20, there's 24 people involved in the, the operation now and 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 some contractors as well so you know it probably gets up with contractors up around 30, 30 staff so and do you um, is that like a lot of regional like regional you try and source them regionally the staff like, yeah you know um it's pretty international like we have uh quite a few taiwanese um, we've always had taiwanese people of not, not the first few years we just ran it on our own really but then um so we have we we really like Taiwanese people. So we have some Taiwanese. We have uh, um, a German person, uh, Sebastian, who's my right hand man. Um, my nephew Tom, and a couple of other Australians. But it's quite an international international group, you know. Um, at one stage, I think German was the predominant language at the distillery, but now that's sort of changed to Mandarin. Mm-hmm. Wow. No, with the Taiwanese. <laughs> with the Taiwanese. <laughs> <laughs> with the Taiwanese, yeah. No, but... Um, <laughs> so, so are there influences coming through in your in your snaps that you're making? Like are you going to have a, what's it, what's a Thai flavour, a lemongrass? <laughs> Taiwanese, yeah, right? Maybe a lychee right. or a lemongrass. Yeah. No. yeah. Oh, um, lychee, bring on lychee. Well, where it's that. really changing. Hmm. Where it's really changing and what where we've seen a real shift is uh, that our, our products are being used in a lot of cocktails and hmm. the cocktail, you know, you know from Canada and the States and how big the cocktail uh, culture is. Yeah. And Australia's been a bit slow on the uptake with that, really? but it's now getting really, really popular and we, we're using a lot of our products in, in some really interesting mixes. So when you say, you know, the Thai influence and all that sort of stuff, there is a lot of influence with the the, the new cocktails that we're making that are, that are um, uh, you know, and, and the ingredients as being and, and the schnapps that we're making or, or the vodka or the gin um, is in, influenced by what, what sort of cocktail we're going to make in the, you know, at the end of the day. And, um, yeah, we've, we've seen a real shift, especially after I, th- I think that the virus is changed the way people are drinking as well like they're finding it really interesting at home to have to make some really interesting cocktails um so you know that's where we've seen the biggest shift yeah my favorite uh, of your flavors is butterscotch and i dread to ask how you make it <laughs> well, well it's still a schnapps base it's an apple based schnapp but then we have our uh secret butterscotch okay um that we we make a uh, butterscotch uh, syrup, and we add, add that to the um, apple schnapps. Uh, and uh, like butterscotch is still our number one seller. Yeah, like it, it's our number one product. Um, Which one do you like for now? Because um, I I have is it oh, back in the day uh, butterscotch I do like, but I it's in my cupboard. I think it's straw. Is it a strawberry? No, no, it's raspberry. Raspberry, raspberry, yes. Yeah, raspberry. <laughs> Sorry. I, I had a really, I have to be honest, I'm going to tell you a story here. My my husband now, but my boyfriend at the time dumped me. So I decided to go and drink snaps around the world when I was 19. And like, so that wasn't a great experience for me. Um, <laughs> so, you know, you do lots of shots and they're like, drink it around the world. And it was back in Perisher in the, so I had like this, uh, so schnapps and me are slowly becoming friends again, but we're, <laughs> But I, I didn't drink them slowly at the time. Yeah. Look, um, yeah, we uh, that's that's good. 
But I think, yeah, well, I think, you know, that whole shop culture is changing a bit and now you've put it in, make yourself a nice cocktail. So Yes, and I think it's yeah. better. It's a better option because, but, yeah, yeah. no, butterscotch is, I mean, there's nothing better than having a butterscotch schnapps when you're after the day in the snow and you're actually in your spa, you know, and you're, like, sipping and, you, yeah. Do you mix? Do you, have, do you have? I'm not sure. I haven't seen been to the um, distillery for two years. But do you have anything like Bailey's? That a thicker one like that, or not at all? Why would you do that? No, no, no. We we find that butterscotch is great because it's so versatile. You can put it in your hot chocolate. You can put it in yeah. your, your coffee and make it chino, and you can do all that sort of stuff. So yeah, you can still drink it straight like you did years ago. Yeah, but we find that most most people are. Um, yeah, yeah, just uh, yeah. We sell a lot of snappy chinos. People love them, and and hot whipped cowboys. That's the um, is uh, the hot chocolate with the butterscotch. Wow, oh, that's, in it. that's our girlfriend mm. Charles' little heart starter at Perisher every morning. Actually, <laughs> her, her eleven o'clock stop at the uh, over at the tea bar. She's like, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> giving away all the secrets on this podcast today. <laughs> yeah, well, that, um, by the way, you're not allowed to uh, um, drink any alcohol with guests or at any time when you work at Perisher now. So oh. those days have changed. Total oh, yeah, ban. This is just a friend of ours when we stay at her lodge at Parish. Oh. Yeah, yeah, not oh, in the okay. uniform. Not in the uniform, no. <laughs> not in the uniform. Yeah. Uh, if you, yeah. yeah. The old days when, um, you know, the, the private instructor would go off to Karela and have lunch with the clients and have a glass of wine, that's all finished, oh, all wow. over. Wow. Mm. So you started yeah. out with your snaps and your, ghoul, uh, your goulash and your... Yeah. And then you've grown the range. And then at what point did you go? Did you go to, you went to vodka first and then gin or gin and then vodka? No, vodka first. We made, we made vodka first. And then the whole, the whole gin thing happened, which was, um, and then, you know, we started making gin. Now, now there's, you know, there was, there was a handful of distilleries in Australia when we started. Now there's close to 400. And the majority are gin distilleries. Uh, we're still only we're the only schnapps guys. I think a yeah. few make the case. There's a little bit of schnapps out there, but we're still mainly um, a schnapps distiller that makes gin and vodka. But um, yeah, the majority of uh, gin is 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 a, a big product, and the industry, the Australian Distillers Association, is telling us that there's still quite a bit of upside. Like people are still uh, changing from wine and beer to to spirits and the spirit is gin so uh, yeah um, yeah. you guys won the gold medal in 2015 for your gin is that right and yeah yeah international yeah um uh spirit awards yeah that was great yeah how did you um, submit your gin it's a big category with a lot of there's a lot of gins in that space so we were really happy to get the gold medal that was great imagine the testers They'd need a week off afterwards, wouldn't they? Yeah. Like the well, well, judges. You know, they might have to. No, they might have to try three hundred gins. Yeah. Well, How would you do that? No, I could. Anyway, there's only one that's got alpine botanicals in it. You know, from the snowy mountains, and that's ours. So they must oh. have said, "Yeah, that's the one." Oh, so that's what. That's what I was going to ask you. What was your local botanicals? Yeah. So which ones? Or is that a secret? Ah, uh, well, well, we use. Um, alpine pepper berry, but not just the berry, the leaf as well, which grows around us here at this altitude. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that that we we use in our gin, and um, we forage a few other special bits and pieces as well, um, because we have our rubus patch, which has um, it, it's slightly more floral and has uh, it has the how uh, um, uh, our, our raspberries that we grow here. In it, so that's our pink gin, yeah. Um, and it has the alpine botanicals as well. And then we have just the uh, yeah, the, they're at forty percent. So we have two gins: the pink one and the the, the classic at forty percent. And then we have our stallion at fifty-seven percent. But they yeah. all, it, you know, they all have alpine pepperberry and leaf and berry in them, which sort of um, yeah, it gives it a really unique. A unique, unique, unique flavor, and 
that you still have to use juniper. Juniper, juniper has to be the you know, the dominant um, botanical in in the gin. But um, mm-hmm. you can bring in your own personality by using uh, you know, botanicals from your your area, which quite a few um, distilleries are doing. But we're the highest, so we have a different selection of botanicals around here in the mountains. So we're the highest distillery in in Australia. Oh, you mean like so, altitude, altitude, altitude wise? Altitude wise, yeah. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So we have a totally different selection of, of botanicals at this altitude. Yeah. Which is great. You know, it's yeah. snowy mountains in a bottle. I love it. Oh, I love that. That's oh, that's what we all want, don't we, really? <laughs> so yeah. with over 300 gin distilleries, um, sorry, making gin, is juniper in yeah. hard supply in Australia? Yeah. Yeah. So- oh, no, juniper, there is a native juniper, um, but uh, it's a lot of the juniper is imported. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a conifer. The juniper's like it's a, it's a little conifer berry. And you see juniper, um, they're those pointy pencil pines. We call them pencil pines when we were kids. Did you climb pencil pines? You remember the little... I grew up on the Gold Coast, so I didn't have too many pencil pines. We had palm trees. Didn't you have pencil pines? Not yeah. really. No, well, pencil pine. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that little berry on the pencil pine um, is is the juniper. Wow. But you have to be a bit careful because because there's some varieties that are poisonous, and oh. a lot of lot of the pencil pines that are around in the Australian gardens, which are an exotic, they're, they're poisonous. So you have to be a bit careful. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So don't go making your own gin. Get it from a yeah. distillery. <laughs> We're not advocating that. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, um, when you go to your dis- um, distillery, it's it's a destination in itself, isn't it? Because you're, whenever we drop in, the place is pumping, and I like that you've got that touch of like if you've if you've dropped in and you're just wearing a shirt, you can actually put on a ski jacket and put a a rug on your knee. I like that little touch. And and, and it's always such a saviour with kids when you've been in the car and stuff to just go, go and run around and see what you can find in the paddock. And you've got all these yeah. sculptures. Where have you, where'd you source those from? Just like did you buy them somewhere or things you found or did you make them or? Uh, yes, some we did, some made in-house, but some uh, uh, this. Lake Light Sculpture is an annual sculpture exhibition on in Jindabyne at Easter, and and a lot was sourced from there. Um, there's also a couple of other installations. There's uh, there's a carbon fiber rod sculpture that was um, uh, is a, a quite a, a well known uh, sculptor did it. Uh, Constantine Dinopoulos is his name. He did that one, and we have a new bronze sculpture which is a, a skiing angel. So if you haven't been to the distillery in the last six months, you'll have to check out the, the big bronze angel, skiing angel, which was mm. uh, a new installation. And there's lots of bits and pieces from Lake Light, which is a fantastic um, exhibition over Easter. They normally get about 15,000 people over Easter that, that go through Lake Light Sculpture, but this year they had 26,000 oh. over the Easter break. And there was some beautiful work. There's about 180 pieces, and that's that's normally where we sort of purchase from there, and then add it to our sculpture garden. Yeah, but, look, um, yeah. It's um. So talking about your, this is another hat that you have. You're also a painter. You're also an artist, and you've um had a couple of exhibitions. Do you do that anymore? Yeah. Too busy in the. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh. yeah, still, still but painting. I love your sourdough here. That just that yeah, is still painting. That is a ski instructor. You know, we were out there in all. <laughs> was your inspiration from that in your ski instructor days the Southwaster skier? <laughs> oh, absolutely. There was um, it, on the way up to Falls Creek. There's a little place called Bogong Village. Yeah, and in Bogong Village, they had a. It was called the Bogong School Camp, and they used to have 80 kids a week in this camp, and they only skied on a Wednesday and they did other stuff uh, the other day and for some reason they come to Falls Creek and we teach all of these these um, kids from Bogong um, Bogong school camp and they they all wore yellow raincoat coats and 
for some reason, they picked the weather pattern and it was usually pretty bad weather. <laughs> okay, so the inspiration for those first sou'westers were they had the sou'wester hats on as well, like the yellow hats and the, the raincoats, and these little boganoids would come every week and learn how to ski. We'd teach them how to ski and they had a ball. But, um, yeah, that's when you get 80, 80 kids in yellow raincoats, it's it definitely... Uh, if you've got you know you've got sixteen of them in front of you as well, and there's these all these little characters in these little yellow coats, it was yeah, that's where it all came from. Oh. And I've been painting those ever since. I love them. Little and had loganoids. Is that your beautiful painting behind you? Yeah, that's one of. That's beautiful. Yeah. I like that landscape. Yeah, no bogong school camp in that one. No, definitely not. <laughs> oh. So, do you, where do you exhibit in Sydney anymore, or you just keep it local, or like? Yeah, the- um, yeah, it's Stanley Street Gallery. Um, yeah. Okay. In in Darlinghurst. Yep. Um, that's 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 um, where I've been exhibiting. I haven't I haven't for for um, about a year and a half. Um, yeah, they've they've had to change how they operate a little bit, but they'll, they'll go back to normal soon and we'll talk about another exhibition. Yeah, it's... Which, uh, which part Which part of what you do gets you up in the morning? Do you get excited about the art or the a new flavour of schnapps or a new flavour of gin or finding, wondering if you're going to eat the wrong juniper berry today and it's your last day <laughs> or what you'll put in your goulash? <laughs> Or what the loving no life girls will ask you next. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's uh, yeah. Hey, let's go back to cocktails, Emma. It's a cocktail of all of those things. Like it's hard to pinpoint one of them. Yeah, any of those in the mix. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hey, it's still pretty nice to get up early and go for a ski, though. Like yeah. that's good. You know what I like? Um, my my twelve year old son. He um he's quite academic, but he really likes his art. And he was saying the other day, I think I want to keep going with art for his elective. And I'm thinking, oh well, I I thought fantastic. Well, I'm thinking, oh, I hope his father doesn't do the old, you know, will it be, you know, how can you make money out of it kind of talk, you know, which. Mm. You know, but I just I, I just think it's so great to have that as a whether it's your whole business or a side business, a side hustle or something you do that you're just passionate about on the side. And I that's why it's nice talking to you, knowing what you do. Yeah, but it, it sort of sounds complicated, like and it but it all crosses over. Like it it's it's um you know, whether it's developing a Threadbowland kids program or um making a, a new schnapps or painting a picture, I find that they're all much the same process. Hmm. So it, like, even though they sound art. like separate, yeah, right. Yeah, so it all folds in. Yeah, wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah, it's the same. It's the same process and the same sort of enjoyment of of creating something. So whether it's a creating a new ski program or creating a new schnapps variety or or painting um, a little dude in a yellow raincoat, it's all it's it's it all fits. Mm. That's just how how I operate. And if your son's interested in doing that, like it doesn't matter whether, mm. you know, the interest in um in the creative arts or and and um if he goes on to be a lawyer, you know, the the best lawyers are the creative lawyers, you know. And that's what they're talking about, but, AI, is that you can have all the robots in the world, but they just will never have the creative side that infiltrate so much of our life yeah that's that's you know so if his interest is there like you can bring all of these things up together at the end of the day um it, it, one just assists the other mm. you know um and you know it's it's not not that we want to ha- have here a huge range of schnapps you know it's just that it's so much fun to add to the range mm. From a marketing point of view, you're supposed to, you know, have less. But for here at Wild Brumby, we like the idea of creating new things and more. We add to the range, you know. Yeah. Um, in the real world, you make one gin and you go and you market the hell out of that one gin. Um, but here it's different. 
But that's a good thing about when you're down at the snowy mountains, you say, you can't just say, oh, I've been to the distillery once. I can tick that off. It's like, you've got to say, well, I wonder what they'll have this time. Yeah. 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 Which is totally different model to a lot of other places. You know, we're direct to consumer and we have a lot of return customers and, you know, they, um, they expect that. They expect to see something new, you know, maybe in addition to the sculpture garden or, or a new variety of, of, of schnapps or, you know, uh, a new painting on the wall. Um, and I, I think that's, you know, we need it here to keep, to keep us going, but it keeps, um, it keeps Wild Brumby uh, new and fresh as well. Like, you know, people say, oh, it's forever changing this place. And it is like, it's, like now with the new still and the new production area, that's changed things again. So next time you come, you'll see some changes. Mm. I, sure. I love that. I think it's a, I think it's kind of inbred in you if you're in the mountains because every year the mountain changes because of the way the snow falls, the wind flows, you know, so you're kind of used to changing. And a couple like people don't like change too often, but I think if you're a mountain person, you, you're forever going, okay, there's a gap there, I need to fill that, or oh, I need to change this because you're seasonal, you're a seasonal person, you know, like you used to kind of go, okay, up we go and out we go. So what, like you filled a lot of gaps in your whole mountain life. What what do you see is coming next for for you guys, for you and Monica? Is she the driving force behind anything new in your life or? I, I um, yeah, look, look, we're not, I can't see any retirement coming up in a hurry, that's for sure. Because there's still so much going on, so yeah, um, it's uh, yeah, that's that's another thing in the, in the mountains as well that you you find that people may slow down, but they don't really retire. Change your daily program a little bit, but yeah. It's, well, what um, are you going to retire? I mean, yes, you can slow down, but you'd be wanting to do your art and everything till your see if you can outlive yeah. Frank Frank Prohoda. How old well, is Frank, he? How old is he now? Frank turns 100 in three weeks' time, yeah. July. Frank Prohoda yeah. is the oldest, the oldest Australian Olympic athlete, winter athlete. Is that right? 1950? No, no, no. It's actually better than that. It's He's the oldest living Olympian in the world. Wow. Okay. Frank. Right. Okay. So Frank... Uh, he he was uh, represented Australia in Cortina di Ampezzo in 90, 1957 at the Olympics, and uh, he turns a hundred in in a few weeks. Oh, okay. So there's a big party. It's going to be a good party. Well, I hope well, Brandon um, will be there with their snaps. You're a... <laughs> oh no, we're there. We're definitely going to be there. So we we had a ski race uh, for Frank's ninetieth. We um um. We all got dressed up as Frank's and uh, and we had a ski race for his 90th. And Frank Frank skied, he raced on his 90th birthday. And that was, he's, he's hung his skis up since then. But, um, yeah, he's, uh, he's looking forward to his 100th birthday. That's for sure. It's, That's um, amazing, amazing. Yeah. A, a portrait of Frank hanging in the, in the distillery. The back part of the distillery is called... Um, Frank Pahoda's Stubel. So he's hanging in the portrait of Frank's in the back. How often does he come come in and throw one back? Yeah, he sits underneath it. It's really cool. Yeah. Frank sits under his portrait. Yeah. Oh, I love that. He, uh, yeah. Um, now he calls in on a fairly regular basis. He's still driving. On the on the mountain road, that's pretty impressive. That's pretty yeah. impressive. He's still driving his Subaru up and down the Alpine Way, like he's still going. Yeah. <laughs> we can all aspire to that. <laughs> if it's if it's your wild Brumby that's keeping him there, I'm going to come and sit on my own chair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, he's still going strong. Yeah. Wow. So we kind of like. So is it what's your major highlight from being in the mountains? Like, what do you? You wake up every day going, oh, I love the mountain air. Could you ever be a city person? No, 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 no. I, I, I just love it here in the mountains. It's just, yeah, it's um, like it can get, it gets very windy and it gets, you know, the, the conditions change rapidly in the mountains. That's, you know, can be, um, it, it can be quite, um, yeah, you know, the, 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 
the weather conditions changing and the the violent winds and the snowstorms. Like I think we're going to have snow on on Wednesday, and we've had strong winds this morning, which are the frontal winds that bring the snow. And I think I just think it's 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 you know you really feel the seasons here, and you really you know it's um yeah it's an exciting environment to live in. Yeah, I agree. And you know when that wind blows that we're going to get good snow. So that's yeah. pretty exciting. Yeah, I agree. The snow doesn't come in Australia unless it's coming sideways. <laughs> a lot of the time. <laughs> it's one of my favourite. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. I'm it, just it, it fall, the snow in Australia falls horizontally, not vertically. That's yeah. it's true. It's true. Yeah. Like, and yeah, the big, the big whales that you get and you're like, oh, here we go. I used to have to go. I used to run a ski lodge with my husband, a boyfriend at the time in Perisher, and used to have to ride, skidoo every day into Charlotte Pass. So I was very lucky that I got to experience that because a lot of people got to stay in cell block. I didn't. I, I escaped every now and then. Yeah. But wow, the wind drifts that I used to have to skidoo through sometimes, you know, it was like, ah, far out, I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it. And it was back in the day before mobiles or anything, so I'd, I'd ring and go, yep, I'm leaving at 7.30. If I'm not there, send someone to get me because I'm buried or I'm bogged or something. But, yeah, on the way home, I do love a wind drift. You know, when you see them in Australia, you're like, oh, there's got to be a stash over there somewhere. You know, yeah. I had, I remember going up on the road, you had to keep the white lights on your left, the red on your right, you know, and if you went at the yeah. right way on your left, you're like, you're in trouble. <laughs> so in yeah. that time, I'm like, oh, damn it, I got bogged. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. I'm driving. Yeah. <laughs> so I was really good yeah. at digging it out and lifting it up and freaking moving the tracks. Yeah. And, <laughs> well, it's really, you've got, it's yeah. an amazing life that you've had, Brad. Like, it's really, really commend. I mean, we had, I had to leave the mountains to get kind of a job and stuff, you know, after a while. Well, I didn't, but we did. Now we're kind of getting back into it. But you've, you've created a yeah. life in there. Would you recommend new people like our podcast is going to be listening to, you know, parents with their kids that are our age. My, I've got a 16 year old, you know, she's a level one ski instructor already. God love her. <laughs> but she, yeah. <laughs> the, the, all the kids in gym. Oh yeah. Look, I definitely recommend. Look, I, and I think you can, I think the best advice is to sort of keep your options open, you know, like um, uh, teach, teach skiing. If you, you know, your daughter has that opportunity and, you know you know but then you know don't say okay well that's that's just it I'm just going to teach skiing that's my career try and bring some other things into it so that you know into the mix um like you can still teach skiing and study and and go to university and then decide to do it for a year and come back and move in and out and you can do that like this there's, there's there's plenty of people that do that and add you know either live in the mountains or 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 or, or, or spend their holidays uh, in, in 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 the mountains teaching skiing, or you know, it's 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 a really cool thing to do, and I'd recommend it highly. I think it's a great profession. Um, it, it it in the old days, it used to open up the world as well, you know, and it, and it obviously has for you. You know, you can you can travel, you can work and travel, and 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 um, and do all of those things. Like if when we go when we go back to normal. That will open up again, and I think that's what the industry is really seeing now. Is the, the you know that, um, you know the exchange of, of inst- instructors from, you know from the northern hemisphere is not there anymore. So there's this huge gap. Yeah, whether a, a career ski instructor, I think you know you should always have another string to your bow. Yeah. And, and opportunities present themselves in the mountains, don't they? Like, because it's forever growing. So you were like, wow, I need to do a distillery and I'm going to do it the best I can. And it is because it's it's a destination. It's a snowy mountains destination now, your wild Brumby, I think, which is a real credit. It's, yeah, there is definitely, well, the things, uh, you know, the, what's, what's changed around here is that we've gone from uh, a winter destination, basically a 16-week uh, winter with a little bit of summer activity to summer as be, being as busy as winter. Yeah. And we had some days in summer this year that were bigger than like 6 million, sorry, it's not 6 million, 6,000 um, people <laughs> went, <laughs> 6,000 people walked to, to Kosciuszko on on uh, Easter Saturday. Mm. Oh, my gosh. From wow. from the top of, from Eagle's Nest to, to um yeah, the top of Cozzy. Wow. Um, and then there was more people that went up from Charlotte Pass. 
and, oh. and the other tracks that lead to Cozzy. But just 6,000 from Eagle's Nest to Cozzy, that's that's a huge it is. number. Mate, the flies. Like you get 6,000 skiers on the hill, it's an enormous number of people. Yeah, it is actually for opening weekend. Like, yeah. Yeah, and you've got 6,000 6, people walking around. Well, we have to ask you where your favourite um, place to ski is, first in Australia and secondly internationally, and I think thirdly in Austria. (laughs) Uh, um, (laughs) um, Threadbow is definitely the peak in Australia. I think it's, um, you know, the vertical, the four lines, the the tree skiing, everything. Threadbow has got the lot. It's... um, you never get bored with skiing in Threadbow because um, the conditions will change. So it keeps you on your toes. Yeah. You, know, you can uh, you can go from powder to firm uh, conditions very quickly. Um, so that's that's the pick. Um, I think the international side of things. I I, I think British Columbia is sort of uh, yeah. is, uh, is has got it, but um, you know. If you can afford to heli ski, do it. That's our goal. Yeah. That's, That's a goal. goal. Yeah. <laughs> it's your goal. Yeah. Um, yeah. You got to do it. Just that. But just I think, on the price. The price. We're not there yet. It's the the <laughs> ultimate sort of staying in the middle of the snow. That experience. Yeah. Look. Um, that's pretty cool. Uh, look, it's it, you can't beat that. British Colombian heli skiing experience, where it's uh, you know the the bugaboos or the uh, Bobby Burns and all of those names, you know, like the old movies, like they are just fantastic places to ski, and you can still ski on glaciers in those areas. Like you know, we're so lucky to have that glacier skiing. You know, you've got you've still got runs where you can do 180 turns in powder and stuff like that. That just blows your mind. It is just the greatest thing to do. and there's different, you know, there's different uh, levels, uh, entry levels as well. Like you can, there are some heli skiing experiences that are that are more affordable, mm. and there's some that are really expensive. So they're the ones that look amazing in particular. Those ultimate <laughs> yeah. experience ones, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And then as far as um, just a great European experiences, you know, in that Kitzbühel region. I just think that around there with the the skiing experience um, and the European experience, I just think Austria has has does it so well. You know, they do they they do they do the um, the village skiing village um, experience really well. Whether it's the restaurants or the hotels and the and the uphill transport and everything, Austria is is a really great destination and in in, in, in really affordable. I think um, you know you, that's 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 a must do. I think if for for, for skiers to experience that Tyrolean yeah. alpine life, it's great. We skied Seoul. Do you know Grant Turnbull, yeah. Shifty? Yeah. From Perishat. Well, yeah. he has passed now, but yeah, we we skied. We went over and visited him for a couple of weeks in Seoul, and that was that was fabulous. That was really really great. Yeah. <laughs> the, the smoking in the roofs and trying to cover my dinner was not so great. I didn't like that, but I think that I think that's all gone now. I don't know when was it. No, smoking's out in Austria. Yeah, it's thought, completely yeah, out. Like, yeah. It used to used to go in for a um, you know glue vine at the end of the day, and you'd go in for one glue, and you'd come out and you'd smell like a you know, a, an ashtray. It was shocking. But that's all stopped now. They don't do that anymore. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Our kids just won't know how to have fun. <laughs> no, that's right. I hope you're saving up for your heli skiing experience. We are. Yeah. It was cheap. Hey, they had really big discount this year. Nobody could get there. I know. I saw it all. It was killing me. I was like, I'm, I'm, I want to go to Canada. I CMH and Mike Wigley and all the big ones were like, because the Americans couldn't get there either, you know. So you kind of so it was yeah. like, let's let us go, let us go. But we're doing the cheaper New Zealand version this year. Yeah, heli skiing in New Zealand. Yeah. Good. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Should be fun. Should be fun. Good well, fun. I'm not. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, well. <laughs> we love anything to do with snow. Thank you so much, Brad, for your time today. It's amazing. No, thanks. 
Thanks for listening to Loving the Snow Life with Emma and Tennille. If you've learned a handy tip or two, then happy days. To catch all our episodes, subscribe on iTunes. It's free. Head over to www.lovingthesnowlife.com.au for more info and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Loving the Snow Life. If you have any suggestions for topics or guests, then email us on our website. Thanks to everyone who leaves a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to share our episodes on your social media.